0: You're listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. I was talking at dinner with um, one of the folks here at the seminar who is involved in a, in, a, in a boys' camp, a boys' ranch, where they take about 32, I think he said, very troubled youngsters, maybe 12, 13, 14 years old, I'm not sure of the age range, and take them for a, a lengthy period of time, a year, sometimes more, and do their best to, um, to to deal with their lives and to help them get straightened out. Now when a kid like this comes to a boys camp with all these problems, <clears throat> what are we calling his presenting problem? He's a kid who's surly, he's tough, he's angry, he's rebellious, he's not cooperative in any way at all. And um, he's been sent there perhaps by his parents who can't manage him anymore, perhaps by a single mother, been married several times and now living with a man and gets rid of this kid who's incorrigible. The kid's been in trouble with the law perhaps. And this kid comes to this camp and there's a presenting problem. What's the counselor's purpose as he deals with this kid? It seems to me that the first thing that needs to be thought through in order for the counselor to define his purpose as he works with this 13-year-old boy is to determine what the roots of this problem really are. And I think there are two choices to reduce everything to a rather simplified level. There are two basic understandings as to what's going on that the counselor is going to need to address. One is that given this child's background, given that the man who's now living with his mother is beating him to a pulp every night or several times a week, the mother couldn't give a rip about it. That kid's got a tough, real tough background. Given that kind of a background, one assumption is that that background has produced in that child a very deep conviction that says, I'm not good. I'm worthless. Call that shame. The other possible root of the problem is that somehow there's a structure beneath the, a structure within the human personality that is giving rise to all the things that we're calling presenting problems, and that structure is rooted in a very different bottom line. Not that I'm not good, but that you're all ahead of me, aren't you? God isn't good. Now, can you see whether you choose one or the other will determine um, just how you how you approach. If you take the position that given this boy's background, that all of his struggles ultimately come out of a deep sense of shame, that I'm not good given the way I've been terribly treated, then I would think that your the, the, the core approach to dealing with this boy is ultimately going to reduce to affirmation. In order to help this child, you're going to want to study the dynamics of damage. You're going to want to have to you're going to want to understand the pain that he has endured the pain that he's denied. Your major purpose is going to be to get that pain surfaced. Your major purpose is going to be to understand the damage that's been done to his soul so the damage can be reversed. And as you do all that sort of thing, your bottom line is going to be to affirm this particular child. If, however, your position is that somehow the root of the problem is that God isn't good, then your entire approach is going to change. There's going to be a very different way of interacting with that boy, a very different way of thinking about the situation. Think of it this way. There are two problems, two categories of problems in all of our lives. In a very simple, basic way, there's two, two categories of problems in all of our lives. One category of problem, one category of presenting problems, if you will, comes out of an attitude that says this, I will find a way to survive. God is not good enough to trust so I'll take over. I'm going to find some way to survive in this world. God is not good enough to trust, so I'll take over. Call that one kind of presenting problem. Call a second kind of presenting problem. There are those problems that are the product of living in a fallen world as a finite being. The problems of living in a world where you struggle with what it means to forgive your mother after all the ways she's treated you. You struggle with what it means to turn the other cheek when this man who's living with your mother beats you to a pulp once a week. You struggle with biblical ethics and knowing how to live in response to these situations. You struggle with what it means to live in a miserably fallen world with all the struggles that that introduces. You have two kinds of problems. Those that are inevitable in trying to live honorably or effectively or responsibly in a fallen world. And those problems that grow out of a basic assumption that God is not good, meaning that I've got to take over. What I want to suggest is that the counselor who believes that the root of all problems, the core structure beneath problems, is that God is not good, that counselor's purpose is going to be to reverse the direction of the energy within the counselee. It's a fancy-sounding phrase. It'll make sense as we continue. The counselor's purpose is to reverse the direction of the counselee from something to something else. What's the fundamental thing the counselor is trying to achieve? If he believes that the root of the problems really is shame, really is, and I'm not good, given how badly I've been treated, then his root purpose is going to be to essentially persuade the child that the message he's gotten from his world really is not true. That'll be his bottom line. Then he'll use God to accomplish that. He'll use the cross to accomplish that. Now, when you take that position, what becomes the pivot point of everything? What's the highest value? answer? Finding self? Believing you're good? But if you believe that the root of all problems somehow grows out of the virus that Adam introduced into the human race, that God is not good enough. How can I believe he's good with a mother like that? How can I believe God is good given my last 13 years? You tell me he's good, take a hike. I'm going to trust nobody. I'm going to look out for myself. If you believe that somehow that's at the root and that the core is far more the virus that Adam injected into the human system and not the way the boy has been treated by his parents, if you believe that, then your purpose is going to be very different. Your purpose is going to be to reverse the direction of the counselee from searching searching for solutions to finding God. Now, think about the radical difference in those two very simple phrases, suppose you're looking for solutions suppose you're wanting to find some way to get this boy straightened out finding some solutions to this young child's problem of believing that he's not very good of having to live life in this miserable world you're trying to find some way to get this life, get this kid's life straightened out and you're looking for solutions you're going to have to do two things that i think are very bad If that's your basic direction, I'm going to find some solutions for this kid, if that's your highest priority, your deepest priority, then two things are going to be required. One is you're going to have to believe that the world is predictable in some form. In order to find solutions, you're going to have to believe there's some pattern, there's some order which, when discovered, can be used to manage life. You're going to have to deny the fact that life really is crazy and unpredictable. And secondly, if you're looking to search for solutions, if that's your bottom line agenda, then it seems to me that your mood toward God is ultimately going to be one of getting. However, if you're moving toward finding God, then what you're saying is there's no need to believe that the world is predictable in a way that it's not. How are you going to tell this kid that if you do X, Y, and Z, this will take place? How are you going to tell this kid that if you treat your parents in a certain way, then maybe this will happen in your life. If you behave in a certain way, people will treat you well. If you work hard, you'll be able to get a job and make it in this world. Maybe he won't. There's no guarantees, but if you're looking for solutions, you're required to believe in a manageability of life, which simply isn't true at all. But if you're looking toward finding God in the hopes that somehow maybe he's good, then an entire structure begins to change. I asked this gentleman at dinner tonight, I said, um, as you work with these kids... If I were to ask you to get up and give a lecture tonight and to, to talk to all of us, you've had experiences I certainly haven't had in directing a, a camp like this for a number of years or being involved in the leadership. If you had to say, what is, the, um, what, what is the most important thing that you do as a boys' counselor with these troubled kids? What's the most important thing you do? Have you ever asked people that kind of question? People in different settings who are working with folks? Have you ever noticed that the answers that come back are from the from the veterans of the battle? from the ones who are really in the battle, that the answers that come back are different than the answers that come back from the professional psychiatrist, psychologist a lot of the time? The answer that he gave, I think, is an excellent answer, and I think it's typical of the answer of people who are engaged in the real battle. And it sounds very simple. It could could sound very trite. I hope it doesn't sound trite to you. But he said that the thing that perhaps is most important in my working with the boys is consistency. Over the course of a year, I want to consistently interact with the boys. My interpretation of that is I'm going to, by virtue of the kind of relationship I offer with to them, I'm going to give them some basic reason to begin hoping that there's goodness somewhere that can be trusted. The goodness is not in you, child. The goodness is somewhere in God, the one I serve and the one I reflect, and when that goodness somehow gets appropriated, then the entire structure on which the presenting problem is built begins to eat away. Do you hear what we're saying by saying that? We're saying that to really help people richly, what needs to be reflected is the character of God far more than an insightful understanding of all the dynamics of the human soul. Therefore, it's my contention that the purpose of a counselor is to reflect the character of God in a way that undermines, that disrupts a structure that we're going to discuss tonight, a structure that is built on the assumption that God is not good. When a person comes in with a problem, and we have this goal in our minds now as counselors, that that somehow what's beneath the problem is a, is, a, is a structure rooted in the fact that God is not good, or the perception rather that God is not good, then we're going to be wanting to 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 move into that person's life with a, with, a, with a twofold agenda that you heard about this morning in the tapes quite a bit. We're going to be moving into the person's life with a twofold agenda. We would like to disrupt the wrong structure, and we'd like to affirm the potential for living on the basis of a right structure. And by the way, I take that category primarily from Jeremiah. When, um, when God first commissioned Jeremiah, remember what he told him to do? He told him, the first thing I want, I want you to do is destroy, then I want you to build. That's the first thing he said. He used two images of a building and a garden, and he said, I want you to tear down the building and all the stones that made up that building, I want you to pulverize them until they're dust. Every plant that's in the garden, I want you to yank out until there's nothing left in the garden. And after you've done the work of what I'm calling disruption, then I want you to build and plant. I want you to rebuild a house, and I want you to replant the garden. That's why our argument is that there's something beneath the presenting problem of that 13-year-old boy who's rebellious, who's hard, who's tough, who's handling life on his own by being a delinquent, whatever he's doing. There's something behind the structure of the person who's addicted. There's something behind the individual who's struggling with depression, eating disorders, bad marriage, down on himself, poor self-image. There's a structure beneath all of these presenting problems that, first of all, must be disrupted and then affirmed. The question for tonight really is, what are we trying to disrupt? I've asked Ken and Joan, they're with us, um, they've been with us all day and they'll be with us again tomorrow and then back again on Saturday. I've asked them for permission to refer to the tapes in the morning and the evening lectures and they had no struggle with that. And that takes a lot of courage on their part. You've got to be very appreciative of their courage. Their attitude was, yeah, it's tough. They're not saying this is an easy thing for them, it's not. Um, it's a hard thing for them but they do want you to feel free if you see them in the hallway not to as I mentioned to one group this morning not to I think that's them let's walk the other way kind of a thing I want you to feel very free to walk up and uh, they want you to feel free to walk up and interact with them and to uh ask them questions, interact with anybody you choose. I did ask their permission if I could refer to some of the material on the tape this morning as I lecture in the evening. And I want you to ask this question as you watch the tapes now uh, and maybe discuss this in your group. What is it in Ken that, based on the one tape, and that was two, two, three months ago, what is it in Ken Ken that needs to be disrupted? Do you all have a thought about that? What is it in Ken that needs to be disrupted? I was told in talking to... One lady who was in a different group than I was involved with this morning, that, um, that there was a bit of a split amongst the men and women in the reaction to Ken. <laughs> in the one particular group. The, the men were identifying, saying, Yeah, to poor guy, give him a break. <laughs> and the women were saying, Why can't he kind of move into her a little more strongly? What's the matter with him? Interesting, a little bit of a sexist reaction there. What is it in Ken that needs to be disrupted? The presenting problem in their marital concerns as they came to talk to me was some difficulties with physical intimacy, a concern that perhaps sexual abuse in the background had to do with that kind of a concern. Uh, The marriage wasn't as close as they'd like it to be. Ken's concern, as he expressed to me rather directly, was I don't feel the kind of passion as a man, not speaking of sexual passion, but just passion moving into people's lives, my wife and and children, particularly my wife and others. I don't feel the kind of passion that I want. That's presenting problem. What's beneath that? Mm -hmm. What's the structure beneath it that needs to be disrupted? We begin to get at it by saying this. Let me just kind of ramble before I get to my points here. We begin to get at it by saying something like this, I think. There, there is a way, and this is very obvious now, forgive me for being so elementary. There is a way that, that Ken tends to approach Joan, at least based on the tape that you watched this morning. There's a way that Ken tends to, that Ken tends to approach Joan that is putting a priority on her nourishing him. Is that not real obvious and elementary and basic? And that seems to him, at least during that session, entirely reasonable. Suppose I'd have said to him at that point, Ken, I don't believe you're applying biblical principles to your marriage. Suppose I'd have said to him, look, the Bible says, husbands love your wives as twice out the church, and I don't see the Lord kind of begging for a kiss. I don't see the Lord coming up behind and having it mean the world when somebody moves toward him and when someone doesn't move toward him, somehow justified in feeling terrible about life. I think you need to be a little more godly in your responses to your, to your wife. But what's the problem with doing that? Would that all be true? Well, I think it would be true. Would that be the application of biblical principles to his life? Would that be what a good preacher does who preaches on Ephesians 5 and then the last ten minutes gives the application and says, Husbands, go out and do these five things? Why is that kind of preaching so rarely effective? Is it not because there is a core structure beneath the way Ken is relating and that core structure somehow needs to be disrupted? And I'm sure they won't mind my saying this. We're continuing to work together in our last session. I think there was some, some very significant disruption. Would that be a fair thing to say? Some real tough disruption is coming, is in the presence, is going on right now. A disruption getting down to some of the roots of a very wrong approach to relating. How about Joan? What needs to be disrupted in her? You see, where we start is talking about style of relating and saying somehow the way a person is relating to another human being is built on a structure that needs to be disrupted. And Joan, I think I'd put it this way, that she tends to handle things a little bit academically. Remember the phrase that I picked up on this morning, something about... i keep run blocking on it. Um, I was very tender and whatnot. Didn't that kind of take away some of the joy of the tender part? Now, what's going on there? She wonders, she asked the question this morning with with meaningful tears. She said, why is the tenderness not there more often? There's a structure within there that supports her in recoiling from Ken when she perceives his need for nourishment. How are you going to deal with that? What's going on? Rather than just giving advice and saying, here's what I want you to do differently, Rather than just assuming that there is some spiritual battle that can be dealt with by the rebuke of demonic influence, rather than assuming that there is an interpretive model that can be followed when they understand themselves real well, somehow they'll be changed, I rather believe that there's a structure rooted in the conviction that God is not good that somehow builds on that, that leads to their relational style, which keeps their marriage from being what you want it to be. What I want to suggest is this that you want to, as counselors, Have in your mind as you're working with people that you want to disrupt disrupt something that's so basic in the human personality that seems like such a given that nobody would think to question it. Nobody would think to say this is a problem. It's just kind of a given. You want to disrupt something that people hold on to as one of the most natural parts of their soul, as natural as breathing. You want to disrupt something so basic that when it gets disrupted, now listen to this sentence. You want to disrupt something so basic that when it gets disrupted, that those people will walk into a terror, that only a confidence in God's goodness will relieve. nothing less. What are we trying to disrupt? And the best way to listen to a lecture is to try to stay a step ahead of me and predict what I'm going to say. Okay? You all doing that? You took the mic right now and you were going to give a lecture on what needs to be disrupted. There's a style of relating which we're not going to disrupt by exhortation. There's a style of relating that we're not going to disrupt by interpretation. There's a style of relating that I would maintain we're not going to disrupt by affirmation. There's a style of relating that we're not going to disrupt by deliverance. What is the core beneath the style of relating that, um, that needs to be disrupted? Let me, let me talk about it this way. Let me go, go back to some very, very basic kinds of things and see if I can't make the structure clear that I want to talk about. When Ken came into this world some number of years ago, I'm not real sure of. Somewhere between 20 and 60, I'm not exactly precise. But when Ken came into this world, he came into the world just like I did and just like you did with three components. Let's see if we can start at the beginning and see how a structure gets built up that leads to the kind of problems that they're experiencing, the kind of problems we're all experiencing, and how that structure needs to be disrupted. When Ken came into the world, he came into the world with three components to his, uh, to his being. Joan the same, me the same, you the same. First, sexuality. Ken came as a male. Joan came as a female, by God's design. We're gender beings. We're male and female. Secondly, we're unique. There's a gender. Secondly, there's identity, uniqueness. The idea of fingerprints in the fingers that are unique. There's also fingerprints in the soul that make me entirely unique. Nobody else in the world like me, ever in the history of time. There's uniqueness, there's gender, and lastly, there's depravity. There's three Ingredients that make up the being that came into this world some number of years ago. And what I'm going to be suggesting to you is that to understand the structure, that may be a way to do it, to understand the structure is to suggest that, that's not going to be helpful, is it? Is that we need to understand who this person is what it means to be a male or a female, what it means to have a unique identity, and what it means to be depraved and to watch that person interact with life, whether it's a mother who's been married three or four times, a father who beats you every day, whatever the case might be, whether it's more pleasant than that or more more difficult than that, and to see how the person interacting with life somehow comes up with a structure which supports all the problems, a structure which needs to be disrupted. You know, one of the things that I think happens a lot, just a side thought, one of the things I think happens a lot is when we hear the stories that people tell And the stories are so gruesome and sometimes they are just so unbelievable that it's hard for us to believe that there's anything that's more basic that needs to be dealt with than the effect of this terrible uh, background on the person's soul. And somehow we begin to side with the person against the injustice of what's happened to them. And we forget to realize that that this person brought certain ingredients into the world that interacting with life's experiences has produced the structure. Now, what have they brought into the world? Three things. First, gender. Let me talk about that for a few minutes. And this is going to be my topic in Friday's workshop, so I'm not going to say too much about that for now. But one of the big issues that I think needs to be thought through very carefully is what does it mean to be male? What does it mean to be female? When I counsel... I was chatting with somebody about this this afternoon. When I counsel it seems to me that to relate effectively to a woman is going to mean something very different than to relate effectively to a man. I relate generally, I think. I think the women that have counseled with me would bear this out a little bit. And if you contradict this, just keep it to yourself. <laughs> but I, I think that the women that have counseled with me would say that there's a, a fairly significant degree of, of involved gentleness. I think very few men would find me gentle. They wouldn't think of that word. I don't think that's the typical word that would come. I don't feel like being gentle with men. There's something about being a man that I think may, it makes it a mistake to come across with a certain level of... Remember Ken's word, I want to be nourished? Remember Dan made the comment during the during the critique that that has either a, a very young feel to it or even a feminine feel to it? Are there, are there real distinctions between men and women that need to be taken into account? Do you believe, as I do, that the soul bears the shape of sexuality every bit as much as the body? Now, I don't believe the soul has a literal shape; it's a metaphor. But I do believe that something about who I am as a man marks me as very unique from who you are as a woman. Everything I do, as a, everything I do, I do as a man. I can't get away from that. Do I want to? Do you want to get away from doing certain things as a woman? What does it mean to be a man, to be a woman? When Ken came into this world 30-some years ago, he came as a male, not as a female. And I would suggest that that means something that's very hard uh, to live up to in a fallen world. What it means to be a man, I'm going to say this more completely this Friday, but what it means to be a man in simplest, most elementary terms, I would suggest is to be aggressive. To aggressively move into our worlds. Why is that so tough for men to do? Aren't you all aware, gentlemen, of um, so many situations come up, particularly if you're married, where you haven't got a clue how to move? You don't know what to do. You're expected, you know, as a man, you're supposed to strongly move into, that's a sexual image, you're supposed to strongly move into something, but you just don't have a clue as to how to do that in given situations. Rachel and I, a couple of months ago, we were at Moody Bible Institute for their Founders Week. And we were up in the um, hotel room, about ready to go down to one of the meetings. And I was sitting in a chair reading something waiting for my wife to get ready and um, and she said words that strike terror into the heart of any husband you'll all relate to this as she was standing in front of the mirror getting ready last minute touches and I was there reading very innocently and patiently she said the following words oh my hair doesn't look right why does it strike terror into a man's heart? What are you supposed to say? Now, you've all been there, and you've all noticed that no matter what you say, you lose. If you say something like, honey, I think it looks great. I mean, it really looks super. Don't all you wives respond to that by saying, hey, that really helps, you know. I mean, that's not what you do. You say, oh, it looks terrible. It doesn't look good at all. No, I think it really looks fine. Oh, what do you do? And so then you change tactics and say, you got a point, you know. And that doesn't seem to go over real big, so I didn't know what to do. And the, the, the joys of manhood somehow escaped me at that moment. Of knowing what it means to aggressively move in, to reflect the character of God, to bless the deepest part of the soul of my wife, that means nothing to me at that moment. So you, you do something. So what I said, uh, sitting behind her, she was looking in the mirror, saying her hair wasn't doing so well, and I said, um, looks okay from the back, you know. To which she responded, Oh, good, I'll just walk backwards all day then. (laughs) I was built to aggressively move into my world, and a whole lot of situations that are far more significant than that terrify me with the idea that I've got to courageously move and I have no idea what to do. That's why a whole lot of men... Work much harder in their profession and on their relationships. Because they have some idea what to do when they're physicianing or dentisting or engineering or selling insurance or whatever their job might be. As a man, I was built to aggressively move into. Now, question, why, is, why didn't Ken do that? And if I just tell him to, what's he gonna do? Same thing I'd do if you told me to. It'd be kind of a, well, you yeah, know, I wouldn't know what to do. Something's missing. There's some structure that's not there that allows me to move into my world as I want to move as a man. A woman, I would suggest, was built, and we'll look at this more carefully. The topic will be masculinity on Friday, but we'll say a few words about womanhood. A woman, I would suggest, was built to be explored as a mystery. I'm tempted to say a hopeless mystery. (laughs) Husbands, dwell with your wives according to knowledge. Now, that's a tough verse, folks. (laughs) Built to be explored as a mystery that can be warmly enjoyed. The counterfeit of that is a stripper. Woman was built to give something that when a man sees, he's very, very taken by encouraged by, wants to know more about, wants to enter into, because there's great pleasure for him as he moves into his wife, exploring more and more of who she is. I heard a pastor just two weeks ago give a sermon in which he said that and their recent anniversary, whatever number it was, I'm not sure, he said to his wife, he said, I'm going to spend the rest of my life exploring you. I want to get to know you in a way that nobody else ever has. And his wife just beamed in response to that. He was taking his energy to move in and to explore We begin life as sexual beings. That's part of our dignity. That's part of the longings that we have within. I'd like to be able to function as a man in my world. My soul was shaped to function as a man, to know what it means to aggressively move into my world and other people's lives. You were shaped as a woman. That's part of your dignity. And you long to be able to give yourself to somebody else who's going to probe the mysteries of your identity and to find a deep level of enjoyment as they get to know you deeply as opposed to be irritated and want to back away. That's part of your dignity. Some of you hate the fact that you're that. Because it's not working out very well. The second thing is identity. We're people with gender. We're people with uniqueness and identity. And I would put that very, very simply by saying that not only am I a man, but I'm also a unique person. I'm a self. In my case, I'm a self that longs to be taken into account. I want to know three things. And I want my world to deal with me on these grounds. I want to know something unique about me that I exist, there's fingerprints in my soul that are very different from yours. And I want to know that when you get to know me, that there'll be three things that happen. One, that you won't find me too difficult to handle. When you get to know me, you won't have to back away. I won't be too dangerous for you. Isn't that why some of you appreciate certain people, maybe a counselor? Because you know you can kind of be honest with you. They're not scared of, you say this, you're going to blow up. They're not walking around like so many of us as parents walk around. Our children are afraid to say certain things because their kids might blow up. As we do that with our children, we teach them our, our children that they're far too dangerous for anyone to handle. That doesn't build a sense of uniqueness, a sense of self. Second thing that a child wants, that all of us want, I want to know something that's unique about me that, secondly, is explored and respected as an important reality but not as the final point. I want to know that as I move into my world as this little baby boy that's born, as a boy, as an individual, that that there's something about me that my world finds interesting, but that also that I'm respected, that there's something about me that's taken into account as as an important reality, but not as the final point. Last summer, I had a chance with Rachel to go to CBA, the Christian Booksellers Association, and um, was on a radio program with Kevin Lehman, the birth order psychologist and in the course of the radio show he asked a question it's a 15 minute show and he said Larry your boys are 21 and 23 as I had already told him he said tell me if you could go back in time what would you do differently as a father if you could go back and start all over again what have you learned now in 21 years that you'd do differently and I said to him in quick response I didn't think about it much I said "Um, I'd make my kids less important to me and he said well let's take a commercial break i tell you why I said that. I think we all err in one of two directions. It's pretty hard to find the midpoint. Either we somehow find our, our kids to, to mean so much to us that they regard themselves as what we treat them as, the, the final point of our existence. They can't handle the luxury. The other extreme, of course, is to treat them as not important at all. I think your kids need to know that they're a big part of your life, but they're not the final part. They're not the final part. I've said it before, and you know, I'll... My folks are here tonight, and I'll embarrass them, but I'll, I'll say this. And I remember as a kid, I think the biggest lesson I learned from watching Dad pray was something mattered more to him than me. And I found great comfort in that. What I've said to a few audiences is that I think the biggest debt I owe is for a sense of transcendence. There's something bigger than them, than our lives, than me. I'm not the final point. And kids need to know that. I'm an identity, but in order for me to be a self, I can't stand the luxury of being everything. I can't stand the luxury of being nothing. I need to be somebody who's taken into account who matters, but something else matters more. And thirdly, I want to know that something unique about me, first, not too difficult to handle, for you to handle, two, an important reality, not the final point, point. and third, that impacts you and my world, there are consequences to what I do, I do make a difference. I want all that. I want to move into my world as a man, as a boy, as a male, that you can handle, you're not scared of, that you treat as important, but not the final point, and that makes a difference in the world, and there's consequences to what I do. There's a third component. Not only am I a gender, a being with gender, not only am I a unique individual, but I'm also a depraved person. There's a virus that's come to me because I'm a member of Adam's race. And the virus, as I mentioned this morning in the devotional, I think can be put very, very simply that God is not good enough to provide for me the opportunity to enjoy my, my identity and my sexuality. God is not good enough. I cannot trust Him. He's not good enough. This is a virus that I come into the world with. It isn't created by my background. It's a problem that precedes all the abuse that I get. There's a problem which precedes the fact that mother's been married four or five times," says the teenage boy to the camp director. "There's a virus within me that says God is not good enough to provide for me the opportunity to enjoy my identity and my sexuality. Therefore, I better look out for myself. That's how every child begins life. <clears throat> all that, all that is there. I suggest, as life begins. I'm me. I'm separate from you. And I found out that I exist as a very separate, real person because of the ways I've been treated. I want to know that. I want to enjoy something about the sexual shape that my soul has been built with. And I also come into the world with a virus. I'm for me, since nobody else is. That's the components with which Ken and you and I entered the world. Now, as that person experiences life, as that person with those three elements encounters life, certain dynamics start taking place. Let me just put the picture that I have of these dynamics on the board. Let me just put on the overhead the, um, my basic understanding of the fallen structure and then explain it to you for the rest of the evening. That's the structure in my mind. That's the structure. Let me explain to you how it works. The person comes into life oriented toward believing that God is not good. That's simply in that person's psychological bloodstream, if you will. We're born in sin. The virus is there. And yet we have these longings that are inescapable. We're dignified people as men and women who are unique, longing for certain things, but believing there's nobody who really is good enough, ultimately, to trust with our souls if we do ever do anything bad. And as a result, I believe that we come into the world and very quickly come to a very strong conclusion. God, whoever you are, whatever the final force in this universe is, you're not taking care of what matters the most in me. You haven't taken care of what matters the most within my soul. I didn't ask to be born into this family. I didn't ask to have this situation come. Sure, I've experienced a lot of hard times and... And a lot of things have taken place in my life, and they're hard, but what seems to me to be most important in the core of the human soul is a structure which says, you're really not good, you've not taken care of what matters the most, and you haven't even had the courtesy to provide a pattern whereby I can manage life. You've not revealed to me, fundamentalism has lied to me, A lot of the seminars have lied to me. They've told me, here's the way to manage life. If you do this, then this will take place. God said it. I believe it. That's enough for me. And because you said this, if I do this, this is going to happen. God, you've let me down time and time again. Have you all gotten disillusioned with God? Have you all gotten disillusioned that there's no way that you can move in a way that guarantees what you want? There's nothing I can do to make life work as I desire. I think a fair number of us hate God for that. You're not good, and life is crazy. And I hate you for that. We have in our home, we just bought a home a few months ago, and um, partly because I travel a fair amount, Rachel's home by ourselves, there's a burglar alarm in the home. And um, you have to disengage the burglar alarm before you walk out the door. Well, one morning I got up last week, and I forgot to press the buttons that turn off the thing, went out to get the paper in my bathrobe and slippers, and as I opened the front door, the siren went off, and it was noisy. It's a real noisy siren. Now, put yourself in my position. What's the first thing that you feel? Well, besides stupid, I understand that. I felt that. But besides stupid, what do you, what's the first thing you feel? Would anybody feel mad? Well, at who? The thought crosses your mind: we wouldn't have the burglar alarm if Rachel didn't want it. That doesn't seem real fair to me somehow, and I don't think my anger is at her, and I don't think my anger is at me because I make mistakes. Isn't there something inside of you, something inside of me, which says, and this will sound weird, but maybe you can agree with this, that there's something inside all of us that says that the ultimate forces in this world are somehow against us? And here's sort of a symbol of it at the moment. And it pulls out within me this attitude which says that that I can't make this world work the way that I want. There's forces out there that are going to get me. And even if I pray a lot and live right and fast carefully and do all the spiritual disciplines, I'm not guaranteed that there is an ultimate goodness that I can trust in. And I just noticed as I came back in, and my first thought, I had to get this stupid thing off. But as I did it, I was just kind of angry. And I pressed a button to get it off so the siren would stop. Partly I'm embarrassed and partly I feel stupid. But partly I feel like, you know, this is a pretty lousy world to live in there's some hostility out there that's against me. And I don't know how to manage it. Do you ever feel paranoid like that? And God has a nerve to come to me and say, trust. Of all things, all the evidence of life confirms my suspicion that God really is not very worthy of trust. And as a result, in the core of my soul... Involved in this very center circle where I hate God, that's the beginning of it. This is the natural structure. I believe that sanctification is a, is a matter of undoing the structure. But the natural structure in the human soul is to feel a terror because I simply can't manage life. I can't make things work the way I want to. There's no predictable patterns. And I feel furious because God is not taking care of me the way that I want and He's not revealed to me what I need to know to make life work. As a result... Rather than trusting him, I I, I hate him. the core of my soul, as a natural man, apart from the work of the Spirit of God, I don't trust him. I hate him. But I have certain desires within me that are absolutely inescapable their desires, their longings as a relational being that require me to be involved in a relationship. Therefore, I turn to my world and I say, after hating God, I need you. And now I need you to do for me something which I refuse to believe God will ever do. I'm turning to you now, requiring something. I cannot kill my desires. I do my best, as Dan talked about, to destroy my desires because it's my desires which increase my terror. It's my desires that increase my rage because I'm longing for things that are not available and there's no one there to trust with all this within me that longs to be a man, that longs to be alive as a person. And God's not there for me, so I'm going to turn to you and see if I can't make life work without God. I still want somebody to be there for me. Listen to a sentence and see if it makes sense to you. The strength of my dependence on others is directly related to the strength of my hatred for God. Does that make sense? So here's that little boy, I'll say it again. Here's that little boy that comes into the world where mothers had a bunch of husbands or a bunch of boyfriends and one of them happened to get her pregnant and now you're that little boy. The strength of dependence on others Come on, mother, can't you do something for me? I demand it. This man that now I call my dad, why must you beat me up? The strength of my dependence on others, you've got to come through for me, is directly related to the strength of my hatred for God. God, you've done nothing. But I can't get away from how much I long for certain things. I can't get away from what I I want. My soul was shaped to move into my life as a man, to enjoy life as a woman. My, my identity is unique and I want somebody to take me into account and to make me feel important. Not the final point, but not nothing. I want somebody to not be afraid of me and to move toward me with love and concern. I want somebody to hold me accountable because they respect me. I want all that. That's what I was built to enjoy. And when I have all that, that's food for my soul. I can't trust God in this lousy world. So you jolly well better come through for me. I need you. And we put the pressure on. And whoever or whatever gives the illusion of satisfying needs becomes compellingly, compulsively, addictively attractive. I hate God and I need you. What's the next thing? What necessarily follows after that? This is a structure, by the way, which when we get it all figured out and thought through, it's going to provide us, I believe, with some categories for listening as Ken talks to Joe. Some categories that we can begin to expose, to highlight, to notice, so we listen with a a, a third ear, with kind of a different mentality, realizing that beneath his approach to Joan, which is leaving her cold in some ways, which keeps them fighting in some very difficult ways, which keeps them from enjoying the love which God has given them for each other, which keeps them from being the parents they want to be, which keeps them from all the blessings of life that God would like to give them as they reflect God well, that the root of all that has to do with, I hate God, and I need you, and then next comes what? And why does that have to follow? Do you see the logic of it? You can't do it. You can't do it. I'm requiring something that only God can provide. I've already concluded He doesn't. He's no good. You're not doing your job. I want somebody stronger than me who is at the same time under my control. See the insanity of sin? I want somebody stronger than me who will treat me as I want to be treated on demand. I want somebody stronger than me who will treat me as I want to be treated on demand. I want to be able to control them. You won't give me what I want. Can I get something out of you that I can make you give me? You won't do it. And I hate you for it. You're not what I want you to be at all. Now things are getting pretty desperate. Now can you see as we continue with this little progression that if the root of all of this, now this is a very important point, it's a repeat point, but listen to it again, if the root of this whole structure is the conviction that God is not good, if Oswald Chambers is right when he says that the root of all sin is the suspicion that God is not very good, if that's true, can you see how that will free you in working with people to realize that the most important thing you can do for them is to reflect the goodness of God as you relate. It really is the power of your relationship, not the cleverness of your interpretations that makes the difference. Because once the conviction that God is not good begins to get disrupted and undermined, the whole system begins to topple. That's why the gentleman who said to me at dinner tonight that the most important thing we do for our kids is not to explain to them all the things that are happening in their souls because they've had forefathers and one mother's been married several times and this is what takes place in you and this is what's going on, we'll interpret it to you. That really isn't the key. The key is consistency, was his word, my interpretation. The key is somehow reflecting the fact that maybe there's basis in this world for reversing your core commitments. And if God really is good, and that can become a foundation for moving into life, as opposed to saying, I've already gotten a raw deal. Now, God, you've got to prove your goodness by giving to this counselor the wisdom to solve my problems. I'm going to go to your Bible with a sense of demand. You prove your goodness by letting me see what's there. You go with that mood, and you're not going to meet God. Hebrews 11.6 is a very striking verse in that connection. That's the verse, by the way, that that night that I mentioned to you last night, March 17th, two weeks after the plane crash. As I got up that night and just before the Lord was very aware that I have no one but Him, but I don't know Him well enough for Him to be all that I need. As I was weeping before the Lord and open to Him and whatever He wanted to say, the verse that, and this hasn't happened much in my life, but it happened that night, the verse seemed to be impressed in my mind. Some of you have that regularly. I don't. But I, I did that night. The verse is Hebrews 11.6. I was saying, God, I've got to find you. I've got to find some way to know you because I-, I can't make it unless I know you better. I don't know you well enough now for me to make it tomorrow. Have you all felt the weight of life that strongly? Have you all felt the craziness of life? As I was sitting this afternoon, I was up in the balcony while Dan was speaking. I was looking out at it, the beauty of the trees and I was saying, you know, I would love to be able to just fully and completely enjoy this place without any of the struggles that go along with life. I'd love to be able to look out and say, this is a beautiful place. I'd love to be able to enter into the fullness of all the joy that's possible, but I can't seem to wrap my soul around it. Can you? Or do you still groan a little bit? Do you have to somehow enter into some very real difficulty of life, the weight of life which puts you in a position of saying that I've got to find God, there's no other solution He's all that I have, but I don't know him well enough for him to be all that I need. And the verse that came that night was Hebrews eleven six. 6. Anybody who comes to God must believe something, must believe that he is. Now, I'm not an atheist, but the verse means more than that. Must believe that he is as he reveals himself. How does he reveal himself? Through his son. What do I see about his son? Something Adam never saw. Until sin made it possible for God to reveal a deeper dimension of his character. Anyone who comes to God must believe that he is as he reveals himself to be in his son and he must believe that he is the rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. Seek him for what? To solve our problems? To make life work better here? That's not seeking him. The weight of life is so strong that sometimes you just give up on knowing God and you just want to get him to do something for you so you find your anger against him, your rage against him is increased, you turn to other people with an even stronger I need you, they don't come through, you begin to hate them as well and the structure in the middle of your soul is just getting worse and worse and you don't know how to handle life. Folks, that's who's coming to you for counseling. That's beneath the struggle that Ken and Joan are having. The next part of this little chart, after I hate you, necessarily follows the next element, which is, I hate me. Why would that follow next? Why the I hate me? Which is easier to believe? I hate you. Which is easier to live with? I hate you or I hate me. Why is it easier to live with I hate me? If I hate me for something that's correctable, I can go to work on it. I hate me for not being everything you want. I'm just not enough to get you to want me. I'll take the blame. And when you listen to a married couple talking, and the husband says, well, I know that I make a lot of mistakes. I'm not moving toward her as I should. And the wife responds with, well, yeah, but I know that I fail too. And you say, well, there's self-contempt. You have to understand there's a function to self-contempt. The I hate me is a very definite function. I'll take the blame. Why? Now listen to a very important point. When I take the blame, it leaves me with the potential of being powerful. Self-contempt is very useful. Never cure self-contempt by affirmation. You you can't do it. There's a function to self-hatred. Self-hatred is never the bottom line problem. I'm not good. That's never the bottom line problem. It's always a sentence, a belief, an attitude which serves a function. To say that I'll take the blame leaves me powerful. I can now go to work on whatever it is that I'm wrong about I can begin hiding it better I can, I can fix it up I can clean it up I can do something different I can go to work on it as opposed to leaving me vulnerable to the fact that there's no one here for me I've already given up on God the virus from Adam is seen to that I don't want him he's no good I've turned to you you're no good I've got nothing now what do I do kill myself or well maybe I can go to work on something within me and now we have justification by works I hate me I really do believe that the teachers, and I'm friends with one in particular that I'm thinking of, a very effective communicator who is, I think, doing a a wonderful job in lots and lots of ways, but he has a message that bothers me sometimes. He seems to be saying, as I listen to him teach, that the core problem in each of our lives is self-hatred. If my little chart here is anything close to correct, that isn't the core problem. That's a derivative problem of some other far more basic things. And if you go to work on an affirmational model of curing self-hatred, you're leaving behind some other deeper things that you're not dealing with. I hate me. Self-contempt is not the core issue. I would maintain it always grows out of rage against someone else. There's always a fury towards somebody else that's beneath your hatred of yourself. I hate me. So many of us say, I don't like being alive as a woman. Don't like being alive as a man. I'm just defective. I'm ugly. I'm fat. I'm this. I, there's no evidence that anybody could ever want me. Something's terrible about me. I'm a terrible, no good human being. And then when a person says that, their pain is so great that we assume that's their bottom line problem and do our best to affirm them by saying the messages you've gotten from your world are not accurate. In fact, you're good. In fact, you're not bad. In fact, the gospel is a gospel of affirmation. And you can look at the cross and see in the cross the evidence of your value. And I do believe that really is at the core of the 12-step movement. At least as it's applied many times. I think it's a mistake. I hate me, I'm bad. What's the definition of badness in this? The person who comes to you and says, I'm so down on myself, I hate myself, I'm no good. What is their measure of badness? Is it a biblical measure of sinfulness or is it something very different? What is their measure of badness? See if this point makes sense to you. The measure of badness is this. I measure myself as bad because of my failure to get you to love me. I measure myself as bad because I couldn't present to you, Dad, anything which kept you from beating me weakly. I couldn't present to you, Mother, anything which kept you from leaving me and taking off with some other man. Therefore, I'm bad because nothing in me could get you to come through for me. That's consistent with the virus, isn't it? God isn't good enough to want somebody bad like me. Personal badness is measured by my failure to get you to love me. Codependency theory generally calls self hatred the central problem and affirms people by saying, by teaching them to say, I do bad things, but I'm not bad. And the Christian version of that, and there is a Christian version of that, is that because we're new creatures in Christ, that's how we must affirm ourselves. I do bad things, but I'm not bad. I'm a new creature in Christ. Let me grapple with my identity and come to grips with my identity as a Christian and make that the root of everything in terms of change. And I would struggle with that as the root. The root of the cure now becomes affirmation. The gospel gets redefined and I come to God for no higher reason than to get over self-hatred. Versus coming to God as a bad person who revels in him because of the character He revealed in the cross. Two very, very different things. I hate God. I need you. I hate you and I hate me. And then out comes one of the major expressions of the depravity of man. But I'm going to make it somehow. That's the arrogance that I talk about in some other settings. Some of you have talked about arrogance before. There's an arrogance within my soul that says, I'm going to find some way to make it. Now, here's my question. Now, put on your thinking caps for a few minutes here. We'll take a break in about 10, 15 minutes. Put on your thinking caps. Given this background, if my little sketch here is anything close to correct, and I think in general terms I'd I'd argue for it, if this is correct, and now I'm coming into the world, I'm this 13-year-old boy, and I want to be respected as a male, I want to be respected as unique, but I believe that God ultimately isn't good and he's done nothing for me, so whatever my understanding of God is, I hate the final force, whatever it is. Come on, Mom. Come on, Dad. Come through. You won't. I hate you. Well, I'll do something to take care of it. I'm going I'm to deal somehow now with my life. I can't stand me, but I'm going to find some way to survive. How do you do it? If all this is beneath the surface of every natural person born in this world, everybody but our Lord, what are some of the strategies you'd come up with for how to survive, given all this as background? Let me give you a couple suggestions. there's 20 or 30, let me give you just two or three. Some very basic generic ones. And again, it's very elementary. The first one, Dan talked about at length this afternoon. What I'm going to do to make it is I've got to somehow kill the deep part of me that the world will never touch. I've got to stop wishing that somebody would want me. I've got to stop wishing that I could enjoy relationships at a deeply intimate level. I've got to stop hoping that I could actually move toward a woman and produce joy in her soul as I impact her as a man I've got to stop wishing that as a woman that there'd be something in me that some man could enjoy I've got to stop wishing that because every time I acknowledge how much I want that I just die inside I can't survive so I've got to kill the part of me that's more beautiful than any other part and more powerful but also more fragile the first thing I have to do is kill something about my soul corollary to that, maybe it's the same thing, is I've got to stop functioning deeply as a man or as a woman. I've got to give up the essence of manhood and womanhood if I'm going to make it in this world. Does that make sense to you what I'm saying that? I've got to give up something deeply masculine about me. For men, I think what we tend to do in our efforts to make it is find some sphere in which we can find some level of contentment or satisfaction. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To learn more, visit largerstory.com.